On Friday, I have to go give a talk somewhere so we won't have class. Um, but what we'll do is we'll have a um, optional makeup class on the reading day, which I assume there is one. They, they try to do a reading day. So it'll be an optional makeup class um, that day. You don't have to come, but, you know, come. We'll have chicken sandwiches and talk. For reals? For reals, no. Talk, yes. Chicken sandwiches, not so much. No, some of us are vegetarians. Some of us are vegan. I'm not vegan, but... Um, vegetarian, yes. Okay. Um, then we'll start Pope a week from today. And... Um, We'll figure out how to how to fit everything else in. Maybe what we'll do is we'll have an extra, that last day we'll have an extra class on Pope. I hope that um, if you haven't read Pope yet, I hope Swift's um, verses on the death of Dr. Swift uh, made you think, oh, who is this Pope guy whom Swift is so jealous of? Um, so he's, he's great. Um, he and Dryden are, are, well, they're all great. Really, everyone we're reading is great in one way or another. They're great. Um, so by Pope, you have this book, right? Um, and so here's what you should read for a week from today. Um, I guess I'll give you uh, page numbers also. Um, you should, should I give you, yeah, I guess so. Okay, so you should read the um, Ode for Music on St. Cecilia's Day, a topic you are now familiar with. An essay on criticism, uh, so that's on page 149. An essay on, on, excuse me, 139. An essay on criticism, which starts on page 143 and goes to 169. Um, the Rape of the Lock on page 217. That's enough. That's more than enough for a week from today. So um, the Ode for Music on St. Cecilia's Day, an essay on criticism, so that gets you from page 139 to 168. Um, and The Rape of the Lock. Actually, now I'm going to make your life a little bit easier. Um, and Windsor Forest, which is page 195 to 210. And we'll do The Rape of the Lock um, after that. So you don't have to read The Rape of the Lock for next Tuesday. So again, it's um, The Ode for Music on St. Cecilia's Day an essay on criticism and uh, Windsor Forest. Um, so that's for a week from today, and we will not have class on Friday. Um, okay, let's look some more at Swift. Um, and basically, I guess what I want to look at are, um, you've now done all the, all the Swift reading in the two anthologies, plus the um, uh, link that I sent you. What are you thinking of him as a person? on the basis of this. Not one to sugarcoat. Not, that's a good way of putting it. Not one to sugarcoat. Um, neither for himself nor for others. Um, and in something of a different way than Rochester, he's a lot more ferocious than Rochester. I think it's worth, why don't we just start by looking at his own account of himself um, at the very end of the verses on the death of Dr. Swift. So this is actually written um, a good 15 years before he dies. Um, but he's um, already in his 60s, not quite as old as Dryden was um, when he wrote the um, preface to Fables, and he talks about um, his own old age, but old enough that you can kind of put it sort of in the same category 
of work that is um, someone who sees, that, sees what's coming and is actually pretty clear-sighted about what's coming. Remember Dryden um, describing how his memory is going, and Swift is also describing how people are talking about how his memory is going, how it takes him an hour to come up with a rhyme word, um, <coughs> how things are decaying for him. Um, and then at the end of, um, he, he basically first has um, an account of um, uh, what people will think about his death, what people in general think um, about the misfortunes of others. Do people know who La Rochefoucauld is? Um, so he was a 17th century um, writer of maxims. And the maxim that um, Swift uh, begins by translating at the very start, if you have the, uh, the um, Lonsdale, this is page 23, <coughs> as Rochefoucauld his maxims drew from nature, I believe them true. They argue no corrupted mind in him. The fault is in mankind. <coughs> so everything he says doesn't show that he's a bitter misanthrope. It shows that he's writing accurately about a bitter um, or at least a, um, a race, a, uh, the human race, that's full of objectionable, objectionable qualities. And so the maxim, as he translates it, the maxim, this maxim more than all the rest, is thought too base for human breast. That is, most people think it's too base, but it's true, he says. In all distresses of our friends, we first consult our private ends, while nature, kindly bent to ease us, points out some circumstance to please us. Um, so that's his much longer translation of what La Rochefoucauld actually says, which is there is something not unpleasing in the prospect of another's distress. That is, <coughs> when we see other people suffering, there's something that isn't unpleasing about that. No matter what we say, no matter what we allow ourselves to say or think, um, there's something not quite unpleasing about that. So now he's going to, yeah? Is it like schadenfreude? It's like schadenfreude. Um, yeah, the, the idea of schadenfreude, which is joy in someone else's pain, um, someone else's unhappiness, um, is related to that. And um, <coughs> There, in schadenfreude, though, and, and Swift probably is a little bit closer to analysis of schadenfreude than to what La Rochefoucauld is actually saying. In schadenfreude, it's like it's seeing someone high and mighty get theirs. Like, you thought you were so cool. Ha, look what's happened to you. Um, in La Rochefoucauld actually thinks it's true of any kind of distress that another person is experiencing, that there's always something that's not unpleasing about it. Um, whether that's true or not, La Rochefoucauld is probably the bitterest of all aphorists. Um, his maxims are, are um, very grim indeed <coughs> about what people are like. They're easily gettable. Um, they're republished every year. Um, but that's one of the most famous ones. Some of them are less bitter and, and very powerful too. Um, but he's, he's a person worth reading. Um, at any rate, the way Swift is describing that is actually um, he's a little bit kinder than La Rochefoucauld, um, although there might be satire even here. Um, he says, in all distresses of our friends, we first consult our private ends. That is, we see what this distress means to us. We consult our private ends. While nature kindly bent to ease us, that is, nature knows 
that the distress of our friends make us unhappy. And so nature trying to make things better for us points out some circumstance to please us, gives us something which allows us not to feel as bad as we might otherwise feel. Um, that's actually um, either bitter sarcasm, in which case Swift is as bitter but no more bitter than La Rochefoucauld. That is, oh, nature is being so kind, makes us take pleasure in the distress of our friends. Or there might be some truth to that analysis. That is that the distress of other people might um, be so devastating to us that the only way we can protect ourselves from it is if there's some pleasure that we take from it. That's actually an old theory of tragedy. That is that our interest in tragedy is um, strange and maybe troubling because it's, we take pleasure when we go to a tragedy at seeing the pain of others. Um, and um, somehow that gives us pleasure. Um, and it's a very old question, um, moral and literary question in literature, why does tragedy give pleasure? Why do people um, feel pleasure when they see King Lear or Hamlet or Oedipus or Agamemnon? Um, what's the reason for that? And one possibility is what Swift is saying here, that um, we have a reaction to tragedy, which is a relief that it's um, them and not us. This is what Tolstoy will talk about in what, Jonathan? Yes, exactly, the death of Ivan Illich. I know you were. I could see you were. Um, no, you were looking for it, but I see you knew, you, you recognize it. Yeah, there's a whole lot of, in, the death of, in Tolstoy's novella, The Death of Ivan Illich. You would have said, said it too, right, Christina? Yeah, um, there's a whole lot. Um, they, we did The Death of Ivan Illich last semester. That's why they should have known. And did know. That's why they knew. Um, there's a whole lot... Um, in, of, of the same idea in the death of Ivan Illich, that it's him and not me. That's what we think when we see someone um, who's sick. And um, Swift himself um, talks about how one regrettable aspect, those who won't be pleased by his death are those who are like a year younger than he. Do you remember this? And why do they want him to be alive? People who are just about a year younger than he is? Yeah. Yeah, and the way he puts it is they stand, I stand as a screen between them and death. That is, well, there's Swift, he's still alive, um, and I'm younger than he is, so that's okay. Um, but once Swift goes, there's nothing now. I'm the last one, um, last person so far standing, or I'm the one who's furthest advanced towards that abyss. Um, so he does a pretty interesting analysis of different ways that you might respond to hearing about the sickness or death of others. Um, one of them is boastful. That is, um, the person who says, ha, I knew he was going to die. I could tell. Look how good I am. And um, actually, he goes around. He's an I told you so. He actually says, I told you so. I knew that he was sick. Um, so everyone is consulting their own private end, um, thinking about themselves when they think about the suffering of another and the death of another and not thinking about that actual person. And then Swift does something amazing, which is he writes his own obituary. Um, that's uh, actually the Times Literary Supplement recently had an um, article where they gave a bunch of examples of people writing their own obituaries. Um, and uh, they're interesting. 
Um, but Swift's is, is pretty great. And the place where it becomes more or less serious and therefore where the bitterness you can feel is um, um, Swift speaking about what he regards as the real um, things that the real things that he's against in the world and in um, the way he has been treated by the world. But he's not full of self-pity. That's another way of saying that he doesn't sugarcoat things. Is self-pity is a kind of sugarcoating. Um, that's the, the one of the great things about Swift is there's no self-pity in his writing. Um, even even though there's complaint, it's complaint without self-pity, because he's not imagining that he's been treated worse than other people. He's not imagining that somehow life has been unfair to him. He thinks it's the universal condition of life to be unfair. So self-pity is sugarcoating because it's basically saying, I can't believe this happened to me. It's so easy to imagine things going happening right. And the sugarcoating is imagining the possible other case where you're treated fairly. Um, the sugarcoating is, I was treated unfairly, but it's clear that that was unfair, and eventually um, people will, I'll be vindicated, eventually people will see that I'm right, because I am right. Um, Swift doesn't do that. Um, Swift isn't engaged in self-pity. I think that's one of the most appealing facts about Swift, is that there's no self-pity in him, or very little self-pity in him. So what we get, the last 170 lines of the poem or so, are those um, which uh, begin at line 299 with, suppose me dead. So imagine that I actually am dead, not just sick. And you know that he complains about being sick like in practically every birthday letter to Stella. Um, he's still got 20 years to live, 25 years to live, um, 30 years almost. No, he doesn't. Uh, 25 years to live when he's starting them. Um, no, 20 years to live when he's starting them. Um, but he's still, um, you know, he's saying, look, I'm old, I'm, I'm decrepit, I'm not going to live much longer. Um, and now he says, with still 16 or 17 years to go, suppose me dead, and then suppose a club assembled at the Rose, where, from discourse of this and that, I grow the subject of their chat. So just imagine that I'm dead and people start talking about me. And while they toss my name about with favor some and some without, one quite indifferent in the cause my character impartial draws. So here's someone who doesn't really care about Swift. Either way, and therefore you get an impartial account of his character, not an account by one of his friends like Pope or Gay or Dr. Arbuthnot. Um, Dr. Arbuthnot is a name to remember. We'll talk more about him later. Um, he belonged to a club with Swift and Pope called the Scribblers Club. Um, but not Pope, who would mourn a month, or Gay, who would mourn a week, or Arbuthnot, who would mourn a day. Um, not a friend of his, but not an enemy of his either. And it's this impartial drawer of his character who's given basically the last third of the poem. Um, and so this is Swift trying to give an impartial account of himself. And then if you go to the very end of that, you get Swift... Um, describing um, his own satire. We talked a little bit um, last week about his savage indignation and the satirical, um, his satirical mode. Um, 
So here he says, here this impartial person, this is line 459, page 33, says, perhaps I may allow the dean, um, his office was, was, um, was dean um, of the church, perhaps I may allow the dean had too much satire in his vein and seemed determined not to starve it because no age could more deserve it. That's how it's pronounced. So he had satire, and he decided he wasn't going to starve the satire in his constitution, because actually the age he lived in deserved to be satirized, deserved satire. Yet malice never was his aim. So he was full of satire, but not out of malice. Yet malice never was his aim. He lashed the vice, but spared the name. So he was always talking about vices that people had, but he wasn't naming the people who had those vices. It was the vice itself that he was against. Um, so he has a famous line about satire um, in Tale of the Tub, where, um, which you have a little bit of in the Oxford, where um, his famous definition of satire is, satire is a glass that is a mirror. Do people know this? Familiar to anyone? Satire is a mirror, a glass, in which everyone may perceive any face but his own. That is, the thing about satire is when you read a satire, you never think you're its object. Um, you can see what a good satire this is of your enemies. Um, they're the ones who act like this. So it's a mirror. It's kind of like, um, like a Harry Potter mirror. It always shows everyone but you. It's, it's an anti-mirror. And so the point about saying that about satire is also to say with a kind of satiric bitterness that satire is useless. That is, it's not the case that you hold up the glass of satire to someone and they say, oh my god, I'm a jerk. I will henceforth be different. You hold up the glass of satire to someone and they say, oh my god, um, my political enemy is a jerk. How can they stand it when they're being satirized so well? Why can't they be different? Um, and your political enemy looking at that, looking in the same mirror, will see you in it. Um, so Swift, part of Swift's um, pessimism is the uselessness of satire. Because even when it's apt and apposite and really um, uh, sharp, everyone always thinks someone else is meant no one will recognize themselves in a satire. It's not that people won't the way Charles II did um, with Rochester's uh, satire in Charles II, um, his very dirty satire in Charles II. It's not that they won't know when the satire is about them. They'll just think it's inaccurate. Um, but if you don't name someone, if you lash the vice but spare the name, as um, Swift puts it about himself, no one is going to think, oh, they mean me. Everyone is going to think, oh, they mean that jerk. I agree. What a jerk. Um, so um, this is actually a, a recent example of this is 1984, um, which how many of you have read? So is it, did you guys read it in high school? Is it still a high school book? Um, so in 1984, basically the um, Anglo-American audience saw it as a really powerful satire on Stalinist, um, on the Stalinist Soviet Union, which it is. 
I mean, there's no question that that's what Orwell meant. But what they didn't see was that it's also a really powerful satire on um, religion in Western politics. And, um, and when people started pointing that out, they said, oh, no, Orwell didn't mean that. Um, but he did mean it, as, as is confirmed later. So 1984, for example, is a satire which um, I think actually did get taught in the Soviet Union as an anti-capitalist satire um, about religion being a capitalist tool and got taught in the US and in the UK as an anti-Soviet satire. So it's a really good example of, of seeing the people that you yourself are dismissing in the glass, in the mirror of satire, um, but not seeing yourself, not seeing your own face in it. So here too he says, yet malice never was his aim. He lashed the vice, but spared the name. No individual could resent. No one could say, that's about me. Why? Because thousands equally were meant. That is, now notice how good and swiftian that is, which is every vicious thing he said about how people acted was true of thousands of people. It's not like there was just one person who acted like a jerk. It's that any jerky action that I can describe, thousands of people are going to say, is it me? Um, you probably know uh, versions of this story about plagiarism, that um, a professor comes in um, to a class and says, one of you plagiarized, and if you admit it now, just come to my office after class and admit it. Um, I won't. Um, uh, I won't put uh, press charges, just you'll have to rewrite the paper. Um, but if you don't admit it, uh, you're in trouble. And then at his office, the entire class lines up um, because they've all plagiarized. Um, he's only caught one of them. Um, why are you looking guilty? <laughs> so um, same with satire. Every, no single person could think that Swift meant them because there were so many different people he could mean whenever he lashes a vice. So no individual could resent where thousands equally were meant. His satire points at no defect but what all mortals may correct. So he doesn't point to a particular defect in a particular person but something that's wrong with everyone. For he abhorred that senseless tribe who call it humor when they jibe, that is who tease people for individual aspects of um, that, that are only them. He spared a hump or crooked nose whose owners set not up for bows. So he never made fun of people for what they looked like unless they were claiming to be devastatingly handsome. But he wasn't interested in saying, oh, look at that humpback fool. Um, he never made fun of people for what wasn't their fault. He only made fun of people for what was their fault. That's what this impartial um, elegist is saying of Swift. True Genuine dullness moved his pity. So if he saw real, genuinely dumb people, he just felt sorry for them, not scornful. True, genuine dullness moved his pity, unless it offered to be witty, unless it tried to say, oh, look at me, I'm so witty. Um, um, I'm going to take you out. Those who their ignorance confessed, he ne'er offended with a jest. So if someone said, I don't know what you're talking about, he would never make fun of them. Those who their ignorance confess, he ne'er offended with a jest, but laughed to hear an idiot quote a verse from Horace learned by rote. So if someone is trying to show that they're cool by um, quoting Horace, 
in Latin, which they don't understand, but they've just learned it in order to look good, then he would laugh at the idiocy of that person um, and jive at them. He knew a hundred pleasant stories with all the turns of Whigs and Tories, was cheerful to his dying day, and friends would let him have his way. Um, Whigs and Tories, Swift, the, basically what a lot of what this poem is about is what happened to Swift when Queen Anne died and the Whigs gained power. And the Whigs were, Swift was um, a dean in the Anglican Church, that is, he was, he was the, um, uh, more or less the equivalent of, um, of a bishop. Um, and um, the Whigs were anti-religion and certainly anti-Anglican. Um, and one thing that the Whigs did was they combined the Scottish church with the English church, um, and he was against that. Um, so um, Swift goes back to Ireland, where he becomes dean in the Church of, of Ireland, which is the Anglican version of the Irish church, not Catholic, but Protestant. He goes back to Ireland um, after... Uh, Queen Anne dies and the Whigs take power <coughs> in England. And the Whigs are really strongly against him. He was politically um, very, very involved. And um, one of the things he boasts about here is that there was actually a reward of 600 pounds put to figure out who the anonymous writer of a very strong political pamphlet was so they could prosecute that writer. And that writer was swift. And he said, actually, his friends were loyal to him so that even for 600 pounds, they didn't turn him in. So that's Swift admitting now, um, 15 years later or so. But he's admitting that he wrote those pamphlets and that his friends knew that he wrote them but didn't turn him in, even for a lot of money. 600 pounds is several years' income um, for a middle-class person. Um, but they didn't turn him in. Um, now he's back in Ireland, um, but he's saying, look, he's not against individual Whigs and Tories. He knows their stories, um, even though the Whig party is persecuting him. He was cheerful to his dying day, and friends would let him have his way. He gave the little wealth he had to build a house for fools and mad, which is true in his, in his will. He wrote his will, house to, he wrote his will out to sustain um, an asylum. He gave a little wealth he had to build a house for fools and mad and showed by one satiric touch no nation wanted it so much. That is, he wrote one satire that um, so offended and, and caught the people that it showed that there really were a lot of madmen in it. That kingdom he hath left his debtor. That's because he's left his stuff to them. I wish it soon may have a better. Um, that is, a, um, someone better... Uh, to um, then Swift to help the kingdom of uh, the United Kingdom, the kingdoms of both Ireland and England. Um, anyhow, that's Swift giving an account of himself as a satirist in a nutshell, um, and an account of what of the of the kind of misanthropy that's his. That is, he's really disappointed in people. Um, he's not someone who just hates people because he's antisocial. He hates people to the extent that they're antisocial. Um, and that's a big difference. And again, that's a way of saying that he doesn't sugarcoat stuff. Um, as I say, I really hope you like the um, verses on the death of Dr. Swift. 
Um, it's also there that you get his um, um, complaint about what a good poet Pope is. Um, so what? So this is back. Let's say, uh, go back to page. Um, eh, go back to the beginning. This is his exposition of La Rochefoucauld. Um, if you don't believe La Rochefoucauld, he says at line twelve, if this perhaps your patience move. Let reason and experience prove. So if, if you don't have the patience for this, if you think that what, he's, what La Rochefoucauld is saying, which is that there's something not unpleasant in the distress of another, if that makes you impatient, well, consider the following facts out of reason and experience. We all, this is your schadenfreude, um, we all behold with envious eyes our equal raised above our size. Who would not at a crowded show stand high himself, keep others low? So. You've all been in crowds. You stand on your tiptoes, even though you're going to block other people, and you, get, you resent the people who are blocking you in front. Who would not at a crowded show stand high himself, keep others low? I love my friend as well as you. That is, you love your friend, I love mine. There's no difference between us. I love my friend as well as you, but would not have him stop my view. Then let me have the higher post. I ask but for an inch at most. So just want to stand an inch higher so I can see. If in a battle you should find one whom you love of all mankind had some heroic action done, a champion killed or trophy won, rather than thus be overtopped, would you not wish his laurels cropped? Um, and he's asking you a serious question. If someone, if someone you really liked suddenly got a great success, um, wouldn't you kind of wish that they weren't quite that successful? Um, dear honest Ned is in the gout lies racked with pain, and you without. So there's Ned, and he's got the gout. He's really miserable, racked with pain. And look at you. You're fine. You're not feeling pain. You're without pain. How patiently you hear him groan. How glad the case is not your own. That's not quite the death of Ivan Illich, which is even more bitter, because people can't stand the screaming of the dying man in the death of Ivan Illich. But it's the same sort of thing. Um, La Rochefoucauld also said, we bear with fortitude the misfortunes of another. We're just really brave when someone else is in pain. Um, Mel, Brooks, Mel Brooks says something similar. He says the difference between comedy and tragedy is you slip on a banana peel and fall into a manhole and die. That's comedy. I cut my finger on a thumbtack. That's tragedy. Um, so it's a similar thing. You bear the fortitude of his gout. Um, how patiently you hear him groan. Um, how glad the case is not your own. Just think of talking to your grandparents. And you are patient, right, when they complain. Doesn't it feel like patience? Um, Swift would not approve. Um, and yet he's also talking about himself. What poet would not grieve to see his brethren write as well as he? So poets are always competitive. So think about why become a poet if the result, if the better you are as a poet, the more other people resent you for being that good. It's not people saying, oh, yay, you're such a good poet, you make my life happy. What they say is, man, I can't believe that you're writing so well. I've really got to get to work. I can't stand the fact that people think you're a better poet than I am. Um, what poet would not grieve to see his brethren write as well as he, but rather than they should excel, he'd wish his rivals all in hell. So you want to be the best poet there is. 
her end. When emulation misses, she turns to envy, stings, and hisses. So when you can't be as good as someone else, when emulation doesn't get you there, um, then you become full of envy, stings, and hisses. The strongest friendship yields to pride unless the odds be on our side. Um, so think of what that does to friendship. Um, if you're not, if you don't have the advantage in the friendship, pride will, you'll become proud, proud and destroy it. But if you do have the advantage, what will that do to the other person? Make them proud and destroy it. So whoever doesn't have the odds on their side in a friendship, they become bitter out of um, wounded pride. Vain, humankind, fantastic race. Fantastic as in um, you would think this could only be in a fantasy. Fantastic race. Thy various follies, who can trace? Self-love, ambition, envy, pride. Their empire in our hearts divides. Our hearts are divided among those vices. Give others riches, power, and station. Tis all on me and usurpation. So if anyone who has those other things, I'm going to feel like I was cheated out of them. This is keeping up with the Joneses. I have no title to aspire, yet when you sink, I seem the higher. So I may not have anything that I could aspire to, but if you're doing badly, I feel better about myself. Um, this is also like Swift as a screen between his um, friends and death. Yet when you sink, I seem the higher. In Pope, I cannot read a line, but with a sigh, I wish it mine. So this is a, I guess you might even call this a front-handed compliment. That is, what he's talking about is how much he, how he resents how good a poet is. And that's a genuine compliment um, to say that he's really bitter about Pope being a better poet than he is. In Pope, I cannot read a line, but with a sigh, I wish it mine when he can in one couplet fix more sense than I can do in six, it gives me such a jealous fit, I cry, pox take him and his wit. Um, so his response to reading Pope is to, um, to curse him. Um, so he's kind of mean to himself too. This is another example of what Lee is calling um, his non-sugar-coating quality. Um, but he's fun, right? Well, I, let me just ask you, I want to look at some of these birthday, letter, birthday poems to Stella. Um, but um, of, the, of the posts we've read so far in their fun mode, who have you found most fun? Swift. Swift? His not fun is also fun. His not fun is also fun. Like which? In this, I, I, when he was um, when he was writing Stella, and it was very um, introspective about his illness. Uh huh. It was very sad, but I enjoyed reading about his sadness. I don't know. <laughs> okay, um, I wonder what he would have said about you. No, that's really interesting. No, that's. I mean, I think that's right. That is that it's maybe you're saying he's not fun is also fun is a way of saying that it's not self pity even when he's writing. Um, out of sadness or, un or unhappiness or physical misery, you still don't get self-pity in him. So yeah, that's good. Um, other, you, you also, Mariel? Yeah. How come? Um, he's just 
Okay, good. Yeah. Um, other people? Like Rochester. Because he's so dirty or because he's so bitter or? Because with, when Swift, Swift is constantly like, I, th I like Swift more when he's more serious because he's, like, like you said, he's kind of, you know, he can have, bring a lightness to a seriousness because he knows, like, this is what life's all about. Um, whereas his humorous stuff can sometimes be like almost too much. Uh -huh. Whereas uh, with Ro like, do you mean like like the um, the Peter and Cassinus one? No, I was thinking more of the uh, yeah. Well, yeah, but also like you understand what he means about the the way he says he treats others when you read something like um, the nymph waking up and then going to bed. Uh huh. Because it's like, well, no, I mean you when he says like. I don't make fun of people who are below me. It's like, well, that's what you mean. I see what you did there. Yeah. I'd rather hear him talking about it than actually saying it. Than actually saying it. Okay, yeah. Interesting. Good. Um, other people? What do you all think? We've read a lot of pretty outrageous poetry. I think the more outrageous um, section of this course is coming to an end now, just so you know. Um, is it too outrageous? I warned you. Um, so, yeah. I actually think Swift is too serious when, even when he's being outrageous. So I, I think I enjoyed Rochester more than him because I, I saw his humor as being more realistic. Okay, whereas, so when you say he's too serious, is that in a way because you can never just relax and love it, but you have to, but you feel implicated by it? Yeah. That is that, yeah, in Swift you can't quite allow yourself, in Swift you always do get a glimpse of yourself in the glass. Um, he says that, sat, that in satire you never will. Um, but in Swift, um, it's, like, it's like that glass is chasing you around. It's not so easy to get away from. And in a way that may mean that it's not... Um, it's not just pure hilarity anymore. Um, so which is the better poet then? They're different. I can't say one is better than the other. They're just, they have very different styles. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think for, you know, reading Rochester, Rochester is performing himself. That is, Rochester saying, essentially, I'm the most outrageous person who ever wrote. Um, and if you don't think so, well, let me go on a little bit, a little while longer. Um, whereas Swift isn't so much performing himself as describing his world. Um, whatever Rochester is doing, even in the satire against reason and mankind, which is the closest to it, whatever he's doing is not quite describing his world. He's describing what it's like to be Lord Rochester looking at this world. Um, and he's usually describing what it's like to be Lord Rochester looking at his own prick. Um, but, so that, that is very outrageous performance. As I say, you know, Byron, um, in a way, combines, um, has learned from and combines um, some of the best parts of all, three of, uh, of all three of these poets, of Rochester, Dryden, and Swift, and Pope, for that matter, also. That is Byron. If, have people taken Romanticism? Has anyone taken it? Um, well, Byron is, um, the famous line about Byron is that he was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. 
um, because like Rochester, whom he liked, um, he would sleep with anyone, anytime, anywhere um, of either sex in any position. Um, although he was always the one who was propositioned. He almost never did the propositioning. Um, and he was kind of proud of it. And um, uh, he was a performer of his own sexual anticness. Um, but he was also um, politi serious, politically serious. That is, he, was, he died fighting for freedom. And he was committed to, um, uh, to freedom and equality and um, against tyranny. Um, and he was also a spectacular lyric poet. And he was also a brilliant satirist of pretentiousness. Um, and uh, that combination in, in Byron is really pretty wonderful of, of um, a whole lot of what seems delightful, if you find it delightful, which I hope you do. Um, in the poets that we've read. What about Dryden? No one wants to make a case for him. He's easily the best poet we've read. Are you not? Is he? Yeah, tell. Yeah, he's just, I mean, that's, I think that's definitely true, but it's just like he's very impenetrable. Uh-huh. Like, I don't know. I just felt like reading, I think Rochester is probably my favorite because I think he was a balance between Dryden, who, like, you really had to, or me anyway, like, struggle to figure out what he was talking about a lot of the time. Uh -huh. And um, Swift, who I think is sometimes a little bit too obvious. Uh -huh. um, I don't know. I thought Rochester was really OK, good. Um, Swift, and th this is one of those uh, two out of three things that is, it's very easy to pair any two of the three poets, but in a way, it's hard to get all three in any category. So what, what um, Dryden and Swift share is um, a, a, a desire, a commitment to um, social critique, which you just don't get in Rochester, far from it. Um, what Swift and Rochester share is a taste for pushing grotesquery as far as it can possibly go, being as outrageous as possible. And what um, Rochester and, and Dryden share um, is, uh, is what? Um, because you, that, that was the first comparison you made. Um, maybe, the, maybe the same Hobbesian view of the world, um, but with Rochester being um, lighter hearted and less um, anxious about what he can do about such a thing. Um, and therefore less, um, I guess what you're saying is, is uh, doesn't fall into, uh, into various kinds of solemnity. Um, it's probably the case, though. I mean, if you're of these poets, the one that you're least likely to buttonhole someone and say, here, let me just read you these lines, is Dryden. Um, and maybe, the, and, and Swift and Rochester, there are plenty of lines that uh, you might be reading and just your roommate hears you laughing or groaning or saying, oh my god, and then you want to tell them why. Um, you probably don't do that much of that reading Dryden. Um, all right, that's interesting. I think Dryden is probably the one that you'll come back to most if you come back to any of them. Um, but he's, which of course you will. Um, uh, 
but they but it's interesting to see what's similar about them. I mean, Dryden has his his uh, um, dirty jokes too, especially in in poems like McFleckno and to some extent Absalom and Achitophel. Um But they're nothing they're nothing like this. Um, okay, well here's let's look at some of the birthday poems. Or do other people want to weigh in? Is that a smile of no, I don't? <laughs> okay. It's not a smile of I've got a cookie. Um, like Faith and Sue. Yeah, okay. What happened to your cookie? I never had a cookie. Who had the cookie? Faith Yeah, what happened to it? You ate it. Yeah. All right. That's why you don't have it. She ate it. Okay. Uh, Let's um, let's look at Stella's birthday, um, 1725. This is on page 19. So as you know, um, on March 13th from 1719 until she died in um, 1729, oh, 1730 she died, um, Swift wrote a poem for her on her birthday every year. So 1725. Um, page 19 of the Lonsdale. As when a beauteous nymph decays, he writes, we say, she's past her dancing days. Um, Stella's 45 at the time. Um, and uh, how old is Swift? 58. Um, as when a beauty, no, Stella, I guess, is 44 and Swift is 58. As when a beauteous nymph decays, we say, she's past her dancing days. Um, why, why do we say she's past her dancing days? Because she's 40. Yeah, so a beauteous nymph decays, is getting older. Um, why don't we say the beauteous nymph is decaying? Well, it's a euphemism, is the point. So what he's doing, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's just worth noticing how all of these people, everyone we're looking at, or almost everyone we're going to look at in this course, um, are people who are learned, um, or learned is the wrong word, who are thinking hard about what poetry can do. Um, we're, I guess I should, I should make this general comment. It, it's a way of saying some of the stuff I said about heroic couplets before, and I pause to say parenthetically that you recognize that Swift is not writing in heroic couplets that everyone notices that his lines are shorter than Dryden's and Rochester's. Um, they're tetrameter lines, not pentameter lines, and that's why they have that kind of rollicking rhythm to them. Um, tetrameter lines are much more rollicking than um, pentameter lines, four foot rather than five foot um, lines. Uh, nursery rhymes tend to be tetrameter. The reason for that is the rhythm is very, very clear in a tetrameter line. Um, tormented with incessant pains, can I devise poetic strains? Or the verses on the death of Dr. Swift. Um, the rhythm is very prominent, and the lines can break right down the middle. That is, the first half is da-da-da-da, and the second half is da-da-da-da. If you break a pentameter line down the middle, because five is an odd number, you get da-da-da-da-da. Those are the first five feet, the first two and a half I mean, the first two and a half feet, the first five syllables, da 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 da. And then the second half is da 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 da. So it's da 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 
da da da da da. Um, so pentameter lines, if you break them in the middle, which poets will often do, the two halves are asymmetrical, which gives them the sound of speaking, of a speaking voice, of a voice that's thinking. It gives them the sound of thought and not the sound of a very incessant, obvious rhythm. Um, five feet can break into three feet and two feet, but if you break it exactly in half, you're breaking in the middle of a foot, and the two halves of the foot are of different qualities. Four feet, the tetrameter, breaks into two feet and two feet, and both halves of the line are exactly symmetrical. So the more symmetrical a poetic line is, the more prominent and obvious its meter is, and the less the kinds of subtle effects that seem like a human voice speaking that you can get into tetrameter lines. So the more pronounced poetic meter is, the more likely it is that the line is tetrameter. Um, the less pronounced the meter is, if it's in verse, the more likely it is that it's pentameter. Um, Swift writes in tetrameter. Um, whereas Dryden and Pope and Rochester and most writers, and the heroic couplet in general, is in pentameter. Um, and we're going to read a lot of Pope now in pentameter. Um, but they're all thinking, as you'll see um, in spades in Pope's essay and criticism, they're all thinking about um, what it's like to read poetry, what it's like to write poetry. We saw that in the verses on the death of Dr. Swift, that um, he's so jealous of of what Pope can do in one couplet, but it takes him six to do it in, um, that he's writing about poetry itself, um, that he also complains about the fool who knows Horace by rote. So there's a poem in which lots of poets are quoted and mentioned and alluded to and referred to. Um, another thing that they're all doing is thinking about well, I told you before about how metaphysical conceits work. I, I gave you a little bit. Do you remember the idea of a conceit? That is an extended metaphor where things that are not obvious in the first part of the metaphor start getting pulled out. Do you remember talking about that, allegorical conceit? You really need to know about conceits um, as in, if you're an English major, if, if you're interested in the history of poetry. Conceits are really, really central ideas in poetry. So again, the idea of a conceit is that you pull out a metaphor um, beyond simply, you know, oh, my love is, is um, my love shines on me like the moon at night. Everyone sees immediately what that might mean. But if you were to say something, ah, oh, my love shines on me like the moon at night, but always keeps her back towards me and waxes and wanes and circles the room, um, then there's a lot of stuff about that metaphor, or that simile in this case, um, that wouldn't be obvious simply by making the comparison. There's a sort of bang, you see it at once comparison that a metaphor does. Um, similes usually don't quite do that, but they often do it. My love is like a red, red rose, um, Robert Burns. But conceits ask you not to just take this initial instantaneous um, flash on the meaning, but to start unpacking elements of the two things that are being compared that you might not have thought about unpacking at first. And the more you unpack, the more you're exploring a comparison, and the more, if the comparison's good, you're saying, wow, what a lucky comparison. Um, some of you who took English 11 with me know the James Merrill poem, The Hourglass. 
where um, Merrill thinks about an hourglass over five or six stanzas, and you could say over an hour as the sand is running out, and every aspect of the hourglass is something, is a metaphor that he unpacks. Um, how the sand in the hourglass is made of the same substance as the glass too. Glass is made of sand. Um, so there's sand running through the hourglass, um, but between walls made of crystal, which is the same substance as the sand running through them. And the shape of the hourglass, and the fact that the hourglass turns over, and the fact that the sand slowly erodes the waste of the hourglass so that hourglasses will always run faster and faster the more they're used as the sand erodes the, the waste down the middle. All of this is stuff that Merrill unpacks. So it's not hourglass, time, got it. It's hourglass, look what happens in the course of time. Look what happens to matter. Think about all of this stuff. That's a conceit. Um, so one way that poets think about poetry is by taking a standard idea from previous poetry, from the world, from the universe of poetry, and finding something new in it and thinking, okay, let's see what that really means. Let's see if it means more than it has seemed to mean. So here, what, what Swift is doing is he's saying, take a cliche. What we say about people is that they're past their dancing days. Um, it's a euphemism for saying they're getting a little old. They're getting a little creaky. They're a little bit crippled or lame or disabled. You just say, oh yes, well, she's a little bit past her dancing days. Um, and that's just a nice way of putting it. But what Swift says is, okay, let's take that phrase, which is a nice phrase, um, and run with it. Not far, but run with it a little bit. So. As when a beauty's nymph decays, we say, she's past her dancing days. We use a euphemism. Now let's unpack it. So poets lose their feet by time and can no longer dance in rhyme. Um, so what's the joke in lose their feet? Yeah. Yeah. Can't, can't stay, can't keep. As time passes, poets lose their ability to write easily in rhythm and in rhyme. So poets also lose their feet by time and can no longer dance in rhyme. We can always rhyme. Rhyming is the easiest thing for a poet to do. It's only novices who think rhyming is the hardest thing to do. Nothing easier than rhyming. The problem is getting a good line to get to that rhyme. As you will see, um, Dr. Johnson um, some of his poetry we will, we will read, and of course you're reading his Life of Swift or have read it by now. Um, Johnson um, wrote, he, he went to his friend Mrs. Thrale's house and he discovered it was her birthday, which she didn't know. She said, I'm having a party, and he showed up and everyone said, oh, you're here for her birthday? And he said, whoops. And what you did at the time was you wrote in an album. You would write your compliments in an album, as you all know. People, you still do this if you go visit like Emerson's house, there's a place where you can write comments. Um, there's a guest book where you can write comments, but back in the 18th century, you would try to write a poem, and usually you'd have the poem memorized to then write in the album when you got there. Johnson shows up. Johnson, you should know about him, that what he's famous 
most famous for, not maybe rightly most famous for, maybe not, not most famous for in English courses, but most famous for in the world in general, is that he did the first real dictionary in the world, um, the first dictionary in the same language as the words it's defining. And so the modern dictionary was more or less invented by Johnson, whose dictionary, Dr. Johnson, now called Dr. Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language, um, was a work of single-handed labor that took him seven years and is the, um, basically the source for all subsequent dictionaries in English, um, especially the source for the OED, but also the source for Webster and for various other um, people. Um, it's in Dr. John, and there, there's some hilarious exam, hilarious definitions in Johnson's dictionary. Um, like the famous one is his definition of oats, which is, you should know that Johnson hated Scotland, um, although his best friend, James Boswell, was from Scotland. Um, but his definition of oats is, in England, feed for horses. In Scotland, feed for men. Um, and, uh, but most of his definitions aren't so delightful, but they're all great. Uh, one of his famous definitions is the definition of net, which um, I can't quote for you, but basically, how do you define the word net? Um, and his definition has something like um, um, an overlap of equally reticulated strings, which something like that. Um, it's, it's actually an amazing piece of writing where he's trying to define the word net. Um, Anyhow, Dr. Johnson is working on the dictionary, um, and he goes to Mrs. Thrale's house, and uh, it's her birthday, and um, the, supposedly she's 35. In fact, she was 39, um, and he didn't have a poem prepared, so he just went to the album and started writing, often danger yet alive, we are come to 35. Um, and he writes this long poem, all the rhymes are on I've. Um, men, when you do seek to wive, look on thrill at 35. Um, and it's about, there are about 25 rhymes on I've. Often danger let arrive, then we arrive. Um, if you seek to thrive, various, various poems like that. And he finished and people said, wow, that's a good poem. And he said, yeah, I had to do it extempore. I wasn't prepared. Now you may see what being a dictionary maker has done to me, for all the rhymes are in alphabetical order. <laughs> um, they are. It goes from alive to wife. Um, and so what he's doing is he's writing the poem, is he's saying, uh, is, he's doing what everyone does when they try to write a rhyming poem, which is, oh no, I need a rhyme for something that ends in ite. Um, bite, sight, dite, hate, won't work. Fight, gite, not a word. Height, jite, not a word. Kite, light, might, night, pite, quite, right, sight, tight. You've all done that, right? Um, so that's what he's doing. And the rhymes are easy. Every single word, he's got the rhyme. The genius is in getting to the rhyme. And that's what Swift is saying here also. That is, it's, we, Rhyming, that's not the hard part, although he does say it's, it's the hard part in uh, Verses on the Death of Dr. Swift. But Testelli is saying, rhyming, that's not the hard part. The hard part is dancing in rhyme. As you'll see in Pope, Pope um, in uh, the SN Criticism says, true ease in writing comes from art, not chance, as those move easiest who have learned to dance. So that it's, um, 
Excuse, yeah, it is true. So it's, um, there's a kind of gracefulness which is dancing, and it's not hitting the mark, which is the hard part. The mark is the rhyme. It's how you get to the mark. That's the dancing part of the poem. So here he takes this cliche as when a beauty's nymph decays, we say, she's past her dancing days. Um, what that really means is when she goes to a ball, she will no longer say yes if someone asks her to dance. Um, that's only for people who are looking for a husband. But she's past that. So as when a beauty's nymph decays, we say, ah, oh, she's past her dancing days. So poets lose their feet by time and can no longer dance in rhyme. Your annual bard had rather chose to celebrate your birth in prose. So I'm no longer good as a poet, he's saying. Every year, your annual bard, your poet every year, every year I write you a birthday poem. And this time, I wish that I could have written your birth, celebrated your birth in prose. Yet merry folks who want by chance a pair to make a country dance, call the old housekeeper and get her to fill a place for want of better. So when people are partying and they need another, um, another dancer for the, the contra dancing they're doing, the kind of square dancing they're doing, that is the, the two, you have, you have um, people facing off and joining and separating and so on, and they're missing someone, so they go to the old housekeeper um, because they don't want, uh, they, there isn't someone better. While Sheridan <coughs> is off the hooks and friend Delaney at his books, that Stella may avoid disgrace once more the dean supplies their place. So here are these two good poets, um, or writers, Sheridan and Delaney, um, and, but they're busy, so okay, I guess I'm gonna have to be like the old housekeeper and join in this dance because you need someone to dance with. That Stella may avoid disgrace once more the dean supplies their place. Beauty and wit, too sad a truth, have always been confined to youth. The god of wit and beauty's queen, he 21 and she 15. So the wittiest young men are 21 years old and the most beautiful young women are 15. Well, it's the 17th century, 18th century. Um, but yeah, that's the idea. So he's saying, look at this. I'm writing, I'm writing poems, love poems as an old man. That's actually something new that I'm doing here writing love poems to a middle-aged woman as an old man. No poet ever sweetly sung unless he were like Phoebus young, nor ever nymph inspired to rhyme unless like Venus in her prime. So standard poetry is the poet is young and the beautiful woman that he's writing about, yes, sexist, um, is also young, is beautiful and in her prime. At 56, if this be true, am I a poet fit for you? So if what I've just said is true, am I at the age of 56 um, fit as a poet for you? And then look at you. I think I said 44, which is 43. Or at the age of 43, are you a subject fit for me? Um, who writes poems to 43-year-old women? That's what he's saying. So is that sugarcoating? No. Um, there you are, 43, are you fit as a subject? Well, at 56, am I fit as a poet? I don't know. Adieu, bright wit and radiant eyes. You must be grave and I be wise. That is, you're 43 years old, it's a time of life for a woman to be grave. I'm 56, it's a time of life for a man to be wise. 
Um, you must be grave and I be wise. Our fate in vain we would oppose, but I'll be still your friend in prose. So I'll always be your friend even if poetry is no longer possible. Esteem and friendship to express will not require poetic dress. And if the muse deny her aid to have them sung, they may be said, which is how it would have been pronounced. So if I can't sing my friendship for you, my love for you, well, I can say it. Even if the muse no longer cares, I can say it. But Stella, say, what evil tongue reports you are no longer young? And then he has this, does this brilliant turn where he says, but actually I shouldn't be talking about how you're 43 and no longer look young. Who says so? But Stella say, what evil tongue reports you are no longer young, that time sits with his scythe to mow, where Earth sat Cupid with his bow. So Cupid used to sit on your shoulder um, shooting darts at people who would fall in love with you, but now time is sitting there with his scythe to mow you down. Who says that? Who says that half your locks are turned to gray? I'll ne'er believe a word, they say. Tis true, but let it not be known. My eyes are somewhat dimmish grown. So what he's saying is, but who says that? I don't believe them, and I can't see it. Why can't he see it? Because he's old, yeah. My eyes are going, and it may be that your hair is turning gray and you're getting all wrinkled and so on, but I can't see it you're still as beautiful as ever to me. So notice how he's kind of um, not only making a virtue of necessity, but also absorbing the punishment of, of time and of aging there. He's saying it doesn't matter, and it's partly because we're still running neck and neck. Um, our relative relation is still the same. You may be getting older, but I'm getting less able to see that you're older. Um, so nothing has changed. Um, Tis true, but let it not be known. Don't tell anyone my, that my eyes are somewhat dinish grown. For nature, always in the right. So there's the, where, where have we seen him say something about kind nature before today? You're nodding? Yeah, yeah, the kind nature. Um, it, to give us ease shows us something that pleases, that will please in another's distress. For nature always in the right to your decays adapts my sight. So I'm still um, fitted to you. To your decays adapts my sight. And wrinkles undistinguished pass, for I'm ashamed to use a glass. That is, I'm too ashamed to wear glasses. So I don't see your wrinkles. Um, if I wore glasses, I might be able to see them, but I'm too ashamed to because that would show how old I am. So why does she look young? Because he's too vain to wear glasses. And that, that all works. Works for him. Works for her. That's what he's saying. For I'm ashamed to use a glass. Until I see them with these eyes, whoever see, says you have them lies. I'm not going to believe anyone who says you're wrinkled. No length of time can make you quit honor and virtue, sense and wit. Thus, you may still be young to me while I can better hear than see. Oh, ne'er may fortune show her spite to make me deaf and mend my sight. 
So the only bad thing that could happen to me is what? Yeah, if I went deaf but could see well, that would really suck. Um, but what does that then mean? Why are, why are seeing and hearing um, not parallel here? Why is one good and one bad? Why is it good that he can't see and also good that he can hear? Why would it be bad if he couldn't hear but, and bad if he could see? Yeah? Well, because he can judge her for who she is if he can hear her speak. Yeah. Yeah, he can judge her for who she is. That there's something really moving here about the fact that what really counts is talking. What really counts is the fact that they can talk to each other. Um, it's not looks that count here. Um, it's the possibility of communication. And communication is with words and with sound and not with what people look like. What people look like doesn't matter. Um, again, that's something that we see over and over in Swift. That's what's so great about a beautiful young nymph going to bed. That the description, the visual description of her going to bed is horrendous and horrifying and gut-churning. But the whole point is that she's still a human being where what it means to be a human being is not what you look like physically, um, but what you think and what you say, and the way you express what you think, and the way you respond to what other people say about what they think. Um, so here he is writing this poem where he basically says, I'm not going to sugarcoat um, the fact that we're both getting old, um, but what I'm going to say is it just doesn't matter <coughs> um, what you look like or my declining physical powers as long as we can still communicate, as long as we can still talk, as long as I can hear what you have to say. Um, I think it's actually, I don't know, do you guys find this poem moving? Uh, I think it's very moving. I think a lot of these birthday poems are moving. I mean, look at the one before it in the Lonsdale also. Um, to Stella, written on the day of her birth, but not on the subject, when I was sick in bed, when he published these poems after she died. Um, he had some explanatory notes. Um, and he says, look, I'm sick in bed. Can I really write poetry to you um, on your birthday the way I always do? And the answer is no, but yes. Um, just as the next poem, 1725, is no, but yes. Um, I can't, but I do. Tormented with incessant pains, can I devise poetic strains? Time was when I could yearly pay my verse on Stella's native day, but now, unable grown to write, I grieve she ever saw the light. I'm sorry she was ever born because I have to write this damn poem. Um, that's the, um, it's still a phrase in French to, um, to voir le jour is, is a French idiom for to be born. Um, it's not so much in English now when we see the light, that basically means that the light bulb has gone on over our head. Um, but in the 18th century, it still had the French meaning of being born. So I grieve she ever saw the light. Ungrateful. It's wrong of me to feel that way, though. I'm ungrateful, since to her I owe that I these pains can undergo, that I can tolerate the pain I'm feeling. is all because of her. She tends me like an humble slave, and when indecently I rave, swift, indecent, raving, you think? When indecently 
I rave, when out my brutish passions break, with gall in every word I speak, she with soft speech my anguish cheers, or melts my passion down with tears. Although tis easy to descry she wants assistance more than I, yet seems to feel my pains alone and is a stoic in her own. So she's also miserable, but she, she's only taking care of him. Um, she's got her own physical problems, which she did. She died before he did. She was, um, I think actually 15 years, I think he's wrong about the dates, but 15 years younger um, than he is, but she dies, um, what, 18 years before he did. Um, and she's sickly, but still she's taking care of him. Um, she wants assistance more than I, yet seems to feel my pains alone and is a stoic in her own. Notice how different this is from the verses on the death of Dr. Swift, where you can um, bear to hear, hear another groan. Not Stella. Stella feels his pain more than she feels her own. Um, when, among scholars, can we find so soft and yet so firm a mind? All accidents of life conspire to raise up Stella's virtue higher, or else to introduce the rest which had been latent in her breast. Her firmness... Who could e'er have known had she not evils of her own? So the fact that she is having these bad experiences, they show how great she is, how firm she is under pressure. Her kindness, who could ever guess had not her friends been in distress? Whatever base returns you find from me or dear Stella, still be kind. In your own heart, you'll reap the fruit, though I continue still a brute. So he's saying is that Stella always rises to the occasion. And therefore, he praises the bad occasions to which she has to rise. If she didn't have to rise to those occasions, we wouldn't know how great Stella was. But, once, but when I once am out of pain, I promise to be good again. Meantime, your other juster friends shall for my folly make amends. So may we long continue thus, admiring you, you pitying us. So even though this life is kind of hard, it's a good one too. I admire you. We who are sick admire you who pity us, um, who are able to do so despite the fact that you too have your own problems too. I guess what I want to say is that Stella's Birthday, 1725, the first of the two poems that we just looked at, that is the one that begins as when a beauteous nymph decays. We say she's past her dancing days. Um, Really, all you need to know to admire Stella and to admire their relationships is that Swift thought, and thought rightly, that she would like this poem. It reflects really well on both of them. Um, it, in a way, confirms what the poem says, what she's like, and what he knows about what she's like, that this is the kind of poem she would like. Not a poem saying, you know, oh, here you are, 23, when she's really 43. But a poem which says, you, you know, you're 43 and getting old, and I'm still older, and I, the only reason I don't see your wrinkles is that I'm going blind. But we can talk, and that's great. And what proves that it's great is that this is one of the ways they have of talking. Um, so it's a, it's a really neat thing. And it's really neat that a poem can sort of be self um, uh, proving the way this poem is, um, can prove that a certain human relationship is occurring 
um, the way this, the very existence of this poem proves that that relationship is occurring. Uh, Faith, did you want to say something? No? Okay, that's fine. All right, so I will see you a week from today, and we will figure out um, when we'll, uh, when exactly on the reading day we'll do the, 